0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral insights from researchers, authors, and practitioners to help you in your work and life.
1: I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Our little podcast has some news to share. We've published 354 episodes, and we've had some amazing conversations with people along the way. And those conversations have led us to be acknowledged by some really terrific organizations, such as Habit Weekly named us Podcast of the Year twice.
2: Woohoo.
1: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and Psychology Today listed us as one of the 21 psychology podcasts that every business person should listen to. Now, this is very cool, and we are very grateful for all of it. And we've added another one to the list. We've just been named the 2023 Behavioral Science Podcast of the Year by GABS.
0: For those of you who don't know, GABS is the Global Association of Applied Behavioral Scientists. It's the first association for applied behavioral science, and they are a pretty rigorous group. You can't just sign up and get in. You have to go through an application process, which... Tim, I wasn't quite sure if if we were gonna pass. I I, I
1: have to be honest. Wasn't quite I wasn't sure, sure. When
0: we, we signed up. Yeah.
1: I wasn't sure if I was gonna get in. I felt like you kind of came through with flying colours, <laughs> but it was quite a process. And but all of that adds to the feeling that getting this award from Gabs, you know, the behavioral science podcast of the year, it's a big deal. A really big deal big deal it
0: it is a big deal because it's from our peers from people who really care about the application of behavioral science like we do and yeah. the field of finalists was amazing i mean there was katie milkman's choiceology podcast wow. steven yeah. dubner's freakonomics radio Neri near and far i mean i To be even listed with those people And those podcasts is just amazing But that we actually want I don't know
1: All I can say is just wow Just wow (laughs) Yeah and Groovers, if you're interested in paying it forward just a bit, please scroll down to the bottom of your app that you're listening to us on and give us a quick rating or a short review. You know, these reviews and ratings help other people who are interested in the practice of applied behavioral science find behavioral grooves. And, and when you leave a positive review,
0: it's even more of a big deal for us than any award we get from any association or other place on there, you know, because, because it means that hopefully we made an
1: impact in your life. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's just so sweet and fluffy. <laughs> that, all right. It might not mean quite
0: as much, but it's still, it's really important for us and we really do appreciate it. And it does help others uh, find us. And, and with that, Tim, I think, I think we really need to, get to our guest. What do you think? Should yeah, we just, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Quit, quit, yes. Actually, this yeah. on, on with the show leads <laughs> on, on us about how great we are and how yeah. much everybody should be Yeah, on with the show. All right. So in this episode, we are sharing our conversation with Richard chotten who is the author of The Illusion of Choice, 16 and a half psychological biases that influence what we buy. And he was introduced to us by one of our friends and our two-time guest in this behavioral science journey that we're on, um, Matt Johnson.
1: Yeah, that was so nice of him. God, that title is just clever as hell, isn't it? Yeah, but but
0: there really are just 16 and a half chapters (laughs) on the biases. So it's it's very accurate, too. And of course, uh, we're not going to tell you which is the half chapter. You're just going to have to read it to find out.
1: (laughs) So Richard started his career as a media planner and has since become the founder of AstroTen, a consultancy that applies behavioral science to marketing. And let me just say something about this book. It's a really good read for marketers. Yeah highly recommended.
0: Yeah, but more importantly it was a really good conversation that we had with Richard and we talked about some of the classic behavioral science stuff such as the IKEA effect and we went spent a fair amount of time on language which fit nicely after our conversation with Jonah Berger. We talked about some of the uh, impact of precise versus imprecise words, we even touched on the replication crisis and and Tim, I know you said this was a really good read for marketers? But I think that overall this has been a really good good read. It's a really good conversation for
1: anybody. Anybody. Anybody, yeah. I, I I'd agree. Yeah. And Richard had some really cogent things to say. Or or should I say he had some smart ideas? to share about ah, the replication crisis. Well, had yeah, some
0: smart ideas, simpler words there, Mr. Lohan. I see you're taking some of his advice. Uh, simpler Absolutely. words to talk about a whole bunch of things. Very but smart that, ideas.
1: Yeah, with that, Groovers, uh, we hope that you sit back with a generous bore of the most erudite vernacular intoxicant that you can pronounce. <laughs> and, <laughs> I can't pronounce all that, right. that's for sure. And enjoy our conversation with Richard Schotten. Richard Chodden, welcome to Behavioral Grooves.
2: Very nice to meet
1: you. It's good to to meet you too. We are really grateful to have you as a guest. We've been fans for a long time. And we're going to have to start with the speed round because that is just what we do. So let's start with with, with an easy one. Would you prefer to have
2: dinner with your favorite actor or favorite musician? Oh, musician, definitely. I have quite... um, (laughs) Unsocially uh, socially unacceptable views about actors. I feel like we give too much attention to actors and actresses. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. Interesting. It.
1: Uh, so, no, it would be yeah. a political statement for you to actually not have dinner with an actor.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think um, Yeah. Right, I find well, it that's, strange. That's good. At the end of TV shows, you have credits. But, we, we, yeah, maybe I should keep these unpopular views myself. <laughs> yeah. <Okay.
0: laughs> All right, we'll
2: we'll get your list of who's made your burger. It it feels strange that we give certain jobs this uh, acclamation and, and not to most jobs
0: yeah yeah that's yeah.
1: In, that's interesting good, good well let's let's point.
0: let's make sure we're not uh alienating any of your fans because they're going oh wait i love actors here and we'll we'll move to this <laughs> next one uh, and, and this kind of goes back a little bit to some of the things that you talk about in your book so um, do you prefer german wine or french wine or does it depend on the music that's playing in the wine shop when you're buying it
2: Oh, very good question. Uh, I think I prefer French, but I've never done a, a blind test. So I'm probably <laughs> flying into the here. yeah. 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 Uh,
0: Fair well, enough. And uh, it's one of our favorite studies we've talked about, too, is just that idea that, oh, you're influenced by more things and sub- subtle things than you think. And so we'll probably talk about that as we get yeah, into excellent. the actual conversation here. Yeah.
1: Uh okay third speed round question uh words concrete or abstract which is best for marketers to use to get their brands more oh, recognized now
2: that's the easy one that concrete definitely concrete yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Snapped. all right all right and 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 these you know we this is this is atypical for us because we're asking like a bunch of questions that refer right back into your yeah. book and most of the time we try to just do you know more Still crazy fun ones but um but they were all really good so we we, we added them in all right last speed round question richard if you're at a coffee shop, would you rather be awarded a coffee after your 10th purchase or just randomly given a free coffee by at the barista's discretion?
2: Oh, I'm a big fan of be, uh, being rewarded randomly. I think if you're <laughs> given one after 10, it just feels like a transaction. If you are given one at the bari- barista's discretion, it feels like you know, you've, you're particularly friendly or, or nice and you feel rewarded. Uh, why? Why is that? Why, why do Why do we tend to feel more rewarded in that random sense? I, I think there, because you feel like you have been selected. I mean, the if, if I've um, done my part of the bargain and just bought 10 coffees and got the 11th free, that's a commercial transaction. The barista, the brand haven't done me a favor. If I go in, there's no promise of a free coffee. They just give one out from the, seemingly the goodness of their heart, then you know, I feel like I've personally been selected, and i probably overconfident about the reasons why I was selected.
0: I love the idea of how you frame that, and this idea that I was selected. And uh, again, as we know how our human brains work, we fill in those reasons, as you said. Um, how how can marketers use this? So, and and as you're thinking about this, obviously your book that uh, is is really framed around and built around marketing but how how do marketers can they use this uncertainty effect
2: okay so so there's um there's a lovely study by Shen and Fishback where they look into the difference between fixed rewards and uncertain rewards and in their study they get people to drink i think it's 3 pints of water through a straw in 2 minutes and if people succeed the first half of the participants are told they will get $2 And roughly 40% succeed in that that setup. Next half of people, same challenge, three pints of water, two minutes of straw. But this time they're told, well, if you succeed, we'll flick a coin. If it lands on one side, you get a dollar. If it lands on the other, you get $2. Now, in that scenario, even though the expected benefit of the the challenge is going to be less, it's going to be $1.50 on average, people are more likely to succeed, they are more motivated to succeed. So you've got of the order about 70% of people succeed in that scenario. So I think the argument goes here that it's not just the financial incentive that motivates us to want to complete the task, it's also the excitement of a small gamble. What's interesting from a marketer's perspective, you can take that study and think, well, how do we apply this to our loyalty schemes? Because most loyalty schemes, most reward schemes, are very transactional in nature. As you said, you buy 10 coffees, you get the 11th free. You go to a supermarket, you spend 100 pounds, you get a pound or a dollar back in in vouchers. Shen and Fishback would say, well, that's not the ideal setup. What you should do is introduce an element of variability. You know, empower your staff to give out one in 10 coffees roughly uh, randomly for free don't give 100% of people 1% off, give 1% of people 100% off, or 10% of people 10% off. It's the same mathematical equation, but it leads to a very, very different reaction. There's a small chain of curry restaurants in Britain called Dishun. And they use this brilliantly. On Mondays, I think it is, when not many people want to go to a, a curry restaurant, or a restaurant at all, they have a really nice promotion. You go in, you order your drinks, you order your food. At the end of the meal, just before you get the bill, they bring out a board and a big bra- uh, brass dice called a matka. You roll the matka, it's six-sided. If a six comes up, everything you've ordered, all your food and drinks, completely free. Now, to a mathematician... To the business, it sounds like it's a 16.66% discount. <laughs> but the way people react is completely different. No one would change their, or well, not many people would change their behavior for a small discount like that. But the thought of getting this food for free and the reaction that it engenders is it, completely different. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for market it. Yeah, it's, it's
0: interesting again, as we talk through these pieces, the way that our brains process what if classical economics would say, that seems really crazy. The idea, as you talked about drinking the the water through the straws, $2 versus a, a dollar or $2. And yet it, it happens. And this is the piece that I think is really interesting uh, about bringing behavioral science, psychology into business. And so, um, you know, You've been endorsed by – the book has been endorsed by a number of big names in the field, like Rory Sutherland, Robert Cialdini, Niriel, Jonah Berger, you know, Seth Steven Davidowitz, who we've all had on the show. Um,
2: Oh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, what what was missing – how are – what what are you hoping to get um, this book and and kind of bring to um, the field? Are, are you are you looking to kind of bring a new perspective? What's your what's your what's your hope for this book?
2: So I, I think if you stop someone on the street who didn't work in marketing and you ask them what kind of disciplines, what academic subjects do you think advertisers and marketers use, I think most of those people would say at the top of the list would be psychology, at the top of the list would be behavioral science. I think most people would find it's very strange that a an industry that is interested in changing the behaviors of, of people does not draw every single day on an academic discipline that experiments on what effectively changes the behavior. Now, I, I think agencies and brands are, are mad slightly not to use this... <laughs> basically free resource. There are thousands of wonderfully clever people. As you said, Ari Ailey, Kahneman, Jonah Berger, all these brilliant minds are working at your disposal, essentially. They're running experiments. They're finding out what uh, can change behavior effectively. All of these ideas are open to you as a market to use. The problem, though, and I hope the book resolves some of this, is unfortunately many academics write in a very turgid, statistic-heavy style. And I think that, that problem's got worse, I think. I've heard people refer to it as um, physics envy. Now, you go back to some of the classic <laughs> papers in the 1950s and 1960s, and they're beautifully written, very simple, very few statistics. You read more recent uh, journal papers, and they're dripping in very complex, perhaps unnecessarily complex statistics. So I don't think agencies and advertisers are using behavioral science as much as they should. And what I want to do in both the choice factor and the illusion of choice is show people that these studies are very relevant to advertisers. The underlying principles are very, very simple and they can easily and often low cost be applied to, to a great effect.
1: I want to go back to the speed round question that i Asked about words because I think that this kind of connects to what what you're talking about here um, in in missing things uh, when marketers have the ability to use more concrete words versus more abstract words they're they're often not choosing it they're not making a better choice you you bring up a great story about Apple in in their their branding and I, I was wondering if, if first of all if you could relate that um, that story. And then, let, can you tell us why you think marketers are missing the boat on applying this remarkably rich resource, uh, especially in this specific domain, in just
2: yep. using good specific words? So, the original studies by a wonderful Canadian psychologist called Ian Begg. And back in 1972, when he was at the University of Western Ontario, he recruits, I think, 24 students. It's, it's of that ilk, 2024 and he reads out a list of 22-word phrases. And he randomizes the order, but some of those words are what he calls concrete phrases, tangible things, like square door. Others are what he calls abstract phrases. Yeah, two-word combinations, right? Yes, exactly. And the, the abstract ones are things like basic truth or impossible amount. Then he asks people quite quickly, after they've read through the list, to recall as much as they can. And on average, people remember 9% of the abstract words, 36% of the concrete words. So you've got this huge swing in memorability. His explanation is the most powerful of our senses is vision. If people can picture the thing that you are describing, it's sticky. If they can't picture it, it's very forgettable. Now, that I think is fascinating for advertisers because what it suggests is you have to translate your abstract objective. Say you want to prove to people you're premium or trustworthy or high quality. Those are intangibles that can't be pictured. The language you use has to translate that abstract objective into much more visualizable, concrete language. You mentioned uh, Apple, and I think they were experts at doing this. And I think the ad you were referring to is the one that launched or was very early on for the iPod. So they had the objective of communicating this abstract benefit of, of memory. You've know, lot you got lots of storage, lots of memory. What every one of their competitors did is communicate that abstract objective with abstract language. Um, 256 megabytes of memory. Very, very forgettable ads. What Apple did so brilliantly is translate that abstract objective into very visualizable language. A thousand songs in your pocket. You can picture a pocket and that makes it sticky that makes it memorable so it's a lovely tactic that advertisers can use if you find yourself communicating in language that is complicated and you cannot visualize it you are not going to be remembered what you've got to do is sit down and think how can I turn this idea into something that my audience will be able to picture
1: is it fair to say it's just hard? It's to, it that it's not as easy as it seems. I mean, as we're talking about it, there's something that just seems so reasonable and accessible about. Oh, I'll just use concrete language, but it is more difficult than that, right?
2: Well, so I wonder because you sorry, you the other half of your questions. Well, why don't people use it? Because it, you, yeah. you're right. It seems a bit perplexing that if it's this simple, why isn't everyone doing it? And the reason I mentioned the sample size and the fact that it was students as well for the BEG study is one thing that I think puts advertisers off. They hear a study, it's more than 50 years old, it was run a very small sample, the sample wasn't representative, and therefore their action is ignore it. That, I think, is fair to a degree, but the reaction shouldn't be ignore the finding, it should be to think that finding is an untested hypothesis, let's recreate it. And it doesn't have to be complicated. So I re-ran that study with Mike Trahan, who's at Lear Burnett's. Uh, We got a much, much larger sample, 400 plus, I think. Re-ran the study. Uh, We changed the words. So there was no talk about horses or basic truth. It was things like um, fast car, more commercial language, or trusted provenance. And we also put in a, a gap between reading out or letting people read the words and then asking them to record them. And not only did we... Fine begs, results stood, they were much more extreme. So we found a tenfold variation in memorability wow. when you had a nationally representative audience and you, I think probably most importantly you put this time gap in. Yeah, so, which was
1: like five five minutes? It's oh just, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, not long at all. So we were, we would have ideally done the next day, but we were constrained, you know, we bookended a survey. So if anything, I think our results probably still underestimate the, the genuine I- I impact. Yeah. So I think one half of why behavioral science doesn't get applied enough is there is a straw man idea in some organizations that this is a abstract field run in labs on students. They imagine that the the, the techniques of the 1950s are still used today. And I think a lot of people don't realize that many of these studies have been uh, run in very, very naturalistic circumstances. Yeah.
0: So Richard, I want to Dig down deeper on what you were just talking about. Cause one of the yeah. things I loved about the book is that you do take a number of these older studies that might have some of those limitations, low sample size, low power, et cetera, and rerun them mostly in field. Actually, I think all in field, right? As you're, as you're looking at those, was there, and you do that throughout the book, you kind of keep referencing, oh, we did this and this was the old one. This was it. Was there any of those? That when you repeated them or when you did that, that they surprised you more than others. Was there was this one finding a tenfold interest, you know, uh, increase as opposed to just fifty percent? I mean, where where what was the the most surprising aspect of doing Uh, some of those?
2: Yeah, then a very good point. uh, I think partly. Uh, maybe to agree this one because of the scale of the impact I haven't seen many other studies which see a tenfold impact the, the other one I, I think I'm always most interested and most surprised by the thing I did last I have kind of <laughs> a move <laughs> study even. effect yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah exactly I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, highly recent, recently dependent if that's a word I'm um, sorry so the, the, I did a really interesting study and I don't I think it was too late for the book in fact okay. uh, I did it with Michael Aaron at uh, Xenosite and, and I love you, in, in, in America And we were interested in the pennies a day effect. So you've got this finding in charity work where if you ask someone for a pound a day or a dollar a day, they're more likely to donate than if you ask for $30 a month, even if the condition is you have to pay a pound every day. I re-ran that study around what I would call temporal reframing for commercial brands in the Choice Factory. uh, And we found the result held. But then last year... we began to wonder, well, not every brand sells over time. Some brands sell in volume. Would you see a similar effect if you talk about the unit price rather than the total price? Mm -hmm. So so the the study we did, 282 people, uh, all told around about Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, $18.99 for a 12-pack, and they're all asked how good value they think that 12-pack is. First, after people get it exactly as I've just said, and I think it's 13.7, think the brand is good or great value. The second half of people get the same base question, but we added on half a dozen words, which were, that's the same as $1.58 a bottle. And there you see a huge increase. Uh, it's more than double, 28% of people now think it, wow. it's good or great value. So that, I'm fascinated wow. by the psychology of price, yeah. but that, the scale of that impact uh, surprised me that it wasn't people were misleadingly told it's $1.58 a bottle if you buy 12. It was, this 12 pack is eighteen ninety-nine. That's the same as $1.58. So I thought when we put that kind of more realistic version in, it would dampen the, the effect. But we yeah. still got a doubling. Mm.
1: That is fascinating. That, that being more granular
2: increased the sense of value Yes, I, I, I put this down to almost a Daniel Kahneman's phrase of whizziati, what you see is all there is. You know, yeah. People don't draw on all the information about the price that is relevant, they draw on what's salient. So if you give equal weight, in the example I just gave, equal weight to the subunit cost, you know, people react slightly naively and think 158 is a small amount and therefore it has that you know positive associations with it. Does it have anything to
0: do with precision? Because you start off the book in oh, precision, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, and you really bring this idea that precision impacts the way we think and believability and expertise. And I'm almost, you know, as you're saying this, it kind of goes, that is a more precise element within that
2: pricing scheme. Yes, I, I'm pretty sure I should double check because uh, I'm doing it from memory. But I think it was eighteen ninety nine. So it was, a, the total cost was precise. But you're right. Generally, if you break it down to units, you'll end up being more precise. So in the book, I talk about a Schindler study which shows that perceived accuracy and credibility is increased with, with precise versus round numbers. But maybe even more relevant, and again, I think this just missed the book. I think I read it too late. I came across, a, a I think it was that five-year-old uh, podcast with Chen. I think it's Keith Chen, behavioral scientist, head behavioral scientist at Uber. Uber, yeah. Yeah, Ah, and he um, talked about a wonderful study they did. I think it's wonderful because massive scale and people don't know they're taking part in an experiment. They're just going around their everyday business ordering Ubers. And he talks about an experiment where people were randomly dropped into one of two, say, groups. Some people saw a surge price for 2x. Some saw a surge price for 2.1x. And what he showed was that people were more likely to accept the 2.1x price rather than the 2x price. So as you say, contrary to what a classical economist would predict, you can increase the price because it has this aura of precision, this aura of being better value. People are more likely to accept it. And I love that because the original work around precise prices by Yanishevsky and you was in a slightly convoluted lab setting. So again, it's another example of this progression of behavioral science where some of those findings, which we may have treated with a degree of caution, are being proved in the real world.
0: Yeah. Richard, can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, you kind of briefly talked about the, the reason that um, is kind of hypothesized why precision is important. Can you expand on
2: that? Oh, yeah. So, so the, I think there are different arguments for credibility and accuracy and then different arguments for why a, a price feels better. So in terms of accuracy and credibility, the study there was Schindler back in 2006 where he recruits a group of people shows them all an ad for a deodorant. And some people see a claim that the deodorant reduces perspiration by 50%. Some see a claim that it reduces perspiration by either 47 or 53%. And he shows that the group that see the precise claim, there is a 10% increase in accuracy, a 5% increase in credibility. Now, the explanation for that is that over time, people learn from their experience in life, that if a communicator is talking in generalities, they generally don't know what they're talking about. If they are talking in specifics, they're more likely to know. And and I always think there's a nice um, personal example you could put here. You know, if someone put you on the spot now and said, how old's your sister? You might say they're 43 or 46. If someone said, how old is that bloke that lives five doors down in your street, that old guy who lives just around the corner, you'd say they're in their 60s, they're in their 70s. So we tend to gravitate almost naturally toward this precision if we know what we're talking about. But if we are uncertain, we broaden the scope of our language. And I think over time, people fuse that connection. They learn that connection. So we assume, we hear a precise number, it must be accurate. Uh, we hear a general number. We, we are starting to, to doubt the communicator. So that's Tim, one just- part. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I was just going to say Tim that just means that we we are viewed as really imprecise and uh you know the generalities <laughs> that we always bring up. So oh. sorry listeners uh we we it's are not the precise people that you you want to be listening to. We do know our stuff. We just can't remember it. So there you well, go. Well <laughs> I,
1: I, I wonder how uh the precision sort of uh, I'm getting back to words because uh, you brought up uh, Danny Oppenheimer's uh,
2: oh, yes, uh study yes, about
1: you. um uh, who, by the way, just have to uh, shout out to Danny because he was a guest on our our podcast as well. But um but you know this this idea of using the simple versus verbose jargon, and that it it, it was sort of a counterintuitive result, right? That that uh, rather than than thinking that the more intelligent people were using all this verbose jargon, that uh, that actually those who the the, the simpler version increase the perception of
2: intelligence can you expand on that a little bit yeah, yeah that's a great one to talk about uh partly because it's uh one of the rare examples of an academic paper the title being a bit of a joke so the uh,
1: <laughs> oh oh he is, <laughs> the oh, the title oh, that's, yeah. is great that's totally
2: yeah. danny <laughs> yes yes Yeah, i think it's consequences of erudite vernacular utilized irrespective of necessity Colon. Dangers of using long not words perfect. immediately Yes. So yeah no I think he deserves a medal for coming up with with that that title that's brilliant <laughs> Um, yes yeah, I, so I think he got these- an,
1: I, I think he actually won an ignoble award oh. f- f- for that he was you know he you know there's the the Nobel Nobel yes. prize but there's the Ig Nobel uh as well the 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 counter counterfactual yeah. of it and, <laughs> and if i remember right he was actually
2: awarded an ignoble or Ig Nobel award I mean, is, i'm never sure is ignoble is that are they trying to criticize you or is it actually a slight badge think, of praise. It, it sounds a bit crazy, but actually underneath there's something important there. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. It, yeah. Okay. I it, think, it's okay. the latter. It's the latter. They're, oh, okay. they're, they're
0: not, it's not, they're not saying this is bad. They're actually saying okay. this is, yeah.
2: Very good. Piece. Okay. But, but Yeah, sorry, sorry. Because um, I think if, if people do speak more simply in um, in business, it would be a massive boon to, to, to all of us. So yeah, the this, this study that he does is a lovely one. So he gets um, abstracts of academic studies, uh, which are often written in a verbose unnecessarily complicated style and he shows those abstracts to a group of people and they rate the intelligence of the author then he takes that same abstract shows it to another group of people and but but he has altered the abstract slightly he's taken out the unnecessarily complicated words and put in simpler replacements now when that group rates the intelligence of the author it's something like a 15%-ish, and I'm not 100% sure here, a 15% improvement in terms of their ratings of intelligence. So as you say, quite a surprising finding that actually we tend to uh, assume that if someone has written simply and clearly, they are more intelligent than someone who's written in a verbose style. So I wonder if there's an element here of, you start off, with knowledge of being kind of simplistic. Then as you learn a little, you begin to overcomplicate things. And ideally, as you get better and better in your field, you begin to be able to translate it into kind of simpler language. So maybe people pick up on that, that slightly. But there is a great, again, learning there for marketers in that so many marketers, especially in B2B, especially in serious subjects like finance or health, they communicate using unnecessarily complicated words. I think the problem here often lies with the generalist marketer. Every copywriter, or most copywriters uh, who are are good at their job, they know the importance of simplicity. But the language they have to defend that simple writing is often, um, or that evidence that they have, is often evidence that might work on them, but it's not going to work on a generalist marketer or or a finance director. They might quote, for example, you know, a dictum from Orwell, you know, along his lines If you know, always use the kind of basic English rather than the complicated, you know, Latin derived words. But the problem is, that's what would influence them. It's not what would influence a logical, rational thinker. So I think if copywriters know about some of these experiments, they can use the experiments to defend the principles that they already hold dear. And that, I think, is sometimes a really powerful use for advertisers and marketers. Sometimes behavioral science tells us really counterintuitive things. Sometimes it tells us things that we already believe in, but we are unable to defend in a a bureaucratic organization. And if you take a peer-reviewed paper and you take people through, here's the author, here's the date, here's the methodology, here's the results, I think it has this wonderful power of switching the conversation from should we communicate simply to how know what are the actual words that we're going to swap what's the how are we going to be simple
0: two of the chapters in your book right after each other um i i I love this is chapter two is called make it easy and chapter three is called make it difficult so (laughs) help us understand richard how can both of these be true you're at one point saying make it easy and then the other part you're saying make it difficult Help us help our listeners understand that you're not just some crazy guy out there, you know, taking whatever's out there. There's, there's some yeah. real yeah. real stuff behind that.
2: I, th- I think so. I can tell you, just just reading the chapter headings might seem slightly contradictory, <laughs> but um, I I try and make the argument that to begin with, there are an awful lot of studies that show if you want to change behaviour, removing friction can have an outsized effect. What's really interesting, in fact, is you think probably the two most respected behavioral scientists, Richard Daler, Daniel Kahneman, on separate occasions when they have been asked what's the single biggest thing that they've ever learned about this field, they often reply with a very similar answer, make it easy. So you've got this um, body of work, people like Bergman and Rogers, um, showing that if you take a small bit of friction out of the customer journey, you tend to have an outsized effect. So there's a whole chapter around some of the, the nuances of that. But then I follow it with another chapter, which is seemingly um, disagreeing with it, which is make it difficult. But one of the studies I draw on there, for example, is Dan Ariely, Michael Norton, and the IKEA effect. So I'm sure many of your listeners are with, familiar with the IKEA effect, the basic idea is the more effort we put into a product, the or, or more effort we put into something, the more we appreciate it. So at first, it feels like behavioral science is trying to have it both ways. And I know that's often a criticism. You can find a bias to back up whatever you want. But when you you, um, dig into those different studies, you you find something that there's something slightly different about them. Make it easy is about changing behavior. The IKEA effect is changing perception of a product. So if you want to boost your quality perceptions, Completely agree, it might be worth adding a bit of friction in. But if you want people to buy your product, to change their behavior, to exercise more, that's when you should be removing the friction. So it's very much uh, the approach that you've got to be very clear about what is the barrier or what is the problem you are trying to resolve as a marketer. And once you're clear about that, then it's easy to match the right behavioral science experiment and therefore the right recommendation to that problem.
1: That's a great way of phrasing it, Richard. That's really uh, beautifully summarized. I, I was happy t- uh, to see you address this idea of increasing friction as a benefit because of some of my own work. I've helped develop a, a goal setting strategy in incentive programs where the salesperson has to instead of just being enrolled automatically in the incentive, they actually had to go and select the level of performance that they were going to achieve. And the consequence of of not hitting that right would mean that they get no no reward, uh, or or they just get a, a much smaller reward. So it slowed them down for just a minute. It it, it engaged that system to thinking just long enough, to, you know, that a bit of friction to 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 get them to think about, oh, well, how much effort do I really want to put forth? How much effort do I have? Capability, opportunity, all those kinds of things, and and it was it. It's, an, it's still an incredibly uh, successful model for increasing performance among salespeople by getting them to slow down and contemplate for just a half a second: where will I be? How much effort can I put into it? How well can I do? So I, I thought that that was that was just a a, a fantastic
2: thing that you juxtaposed those two as well. Yeah. So, oh, so. excellent, excellent. Um, I think um, again, it was just slightly after the book. I think that I heard someone make the comment that they thought and i've forgotten who it is i can't credit them but um they made the comment that sam pellegrino were applying this principle of, of make it difficult very well so and this, this is one of those where it might vary by market but what they used to do and i think they might have phased it out for budget savings is you would have your standard squat 330 milliliter can like a coke can but they put a foil lid on top and I thought, that, tie, that's, that make, there is something there. It makes it feel special. You've got to go to the effort to unpeel it and reveal it. It's uh-huh. a bit like the difference between a, um, a cork and a bottle of wine and then a screw cap and a bottle of wine. Yeah. You know, you're giving oh, someone a little yeah. bit of theatre, a little bit of effort. Hopefully they, they appreciate it more.
0: Yeah. And, and actually, I mean, the wine is actually really interesting because re, they, the corks tend to have actually worse performance in keeping that wine the way that it <laughs> needs right. to be, and yet there's a big resistance into changing that, and that partly probably because of that particular aspect of it. So,
2: yeah. Yes, and there, there might be um, some uh, sense in the traditionalists who are re- 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 rejecting screw caps in that they recognize people are not computers and automatons that just analyze the physical constituents of a drink part of what we taste is what we expect to taste. And if people wrongly or rightly have this set of associations about the traditional cork, be very, very careful about removing it.
0: It, it, it could have some uh you know the uncertainty effect too you know you, there's a there's a certain number of bottles that <laughs> this may not be good you know so it's like i have this there's a it's the lottery effect here as we're going again all of these factors coming
2: into play <laughs> yeah so. So, yeah then, and that then it starts to get quite complicated because mm-hmm. it would probably depend on what proportion of bottles are corks and bad tasting, because there, there is a, a lovely set of studies, I think I mentioned it right at the back of the book about, um, when I talk about the peak end rule, that there is a negativity bias. I think, and apologies, if this is one of, um, I think it was Prato who did the study, gives people a list of, of, of 20 words, and there is a mix of positive and negative words. So maybe generosity would be a positive word, meanness would be the negative. And, and after people read through them, she asked people to recall as many as they can. And I think it was the order of about a twofold greater likelihood of remembering the negative words than the um, positive ones. So you so this argument would be, you know, a negativity bias, one or two bad events have a disproportionate effect in, in terms of memory of wine as a, as a category. So, yeah, there is a slight, you know, it, there's a bit of a gamble there. Uh, and then maybe over time, you know, you're not doing yourself any favors with a couple of uh, like horrible bottles.
1: We're talking a lot. uh, We've mentioned many academic papers, research papers, research projects, and something that uh, is important to you is the replication of those. It's a, a theme throughout the whole book. And I was wondering if, if we could turn that just to look a little bit at the replication crisis or the so-called replication crisis and and get some of your thoughts about what you think about how the replication crisis has been framed sort of within the community of academics and, and then in the popular press as well.
2: Yeah. So I think there, there's two interesting parts about the, the replication crisis. The first of all is the Project of rerunning studies is a very, very valuable thing, and if some of those studies, existing historic famous studies, are found no longer to work, it is much better to know that than not know it. So I think Tim, you mentioned this another another occasion that the word crisis is maybe uh, the wrong word. It's a very loaded negative word. Very much. Some studies don't. Uh, robustly replicate is not a problem in and of itself. It's only a problem if people keep on referencing and reusing debunked studies. So I think there's, that, that's one really important area because many marketers use the replication crisis as a stick to beat behavioral scientists with. But the irony there is marketers, especially a lot of the data sets that we use in, in Britain, now, many of the very famous research um, projects that have been created have never even been rerun or, or there's been no <laughs> attempt at replicating them. That is a far, far worse situation because you don't know whether you have a bogus find or not if you haven't tried to rerun it. Much, much better if you rerun lots of studies and then you purge the field of those studies that aren't, aren't worthy. Yeah. I
0: want to go uh, another I'm gonna switch this around. So, in in one of the the components that you talked about, you talked about freedom of choice. The idea of reactance is a topic in the book. And you have a tip: avoid overly assertive messages when communicating with your loyal customers. And and I know that you're focusing in on marketing, but I do a lot of internal work within organizations and employee things. And I would say that is the same aspect when you're communicating with employees is sometimes that we overly, uh, you know, take some of this. And I Wondering if, if you see the insights that you get from this book, are they applicable across other domains outside of just marketing, particularly as it relates to uh, internal employee communication and, and kind of the work in in inside of companies?
2: Oh, that's so. That's a great question. I think firstly the point you make around people who really like a brand are more likely to react poorly to authoritarian, pushy messages. I've never thought about it the way that you just mentioned it, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, however much you like a brand, you don't have a sense of ownership about it or a sense of affinity in the same way that the employee has. So I think you're right that the uh, the expectation would be authoritarian messages from managers are more likely to create reactants than anything a, a brand does. And I wonder if, there's something similar around being a citizen. That do you are you more likely to push back against authoritarian messages from a, a government as well because you feel like there is a, there, there's a, a different type of relationship than there is with a brand. So I think that's a that's a fascinating area. Um, speculating completely, but I think it's I agree <laughs> with you. Um, but then your point about that kind of broader point of can some of these experiments be used on professionals? I would say the majority. Of studies that have been rerun amongst professionals show the biases are still effective, but there the the scale of the impact might vary. So, mm-hmm. for example, there is a lovely study about the impact of small pieces of friction on doctors. It's a 2014 to 2017 study by Olshan. Uh, I think it's the Penn Medical Unit. And what he does is look at the proportion of drugs that doctors are recommending or or prescribing sorry that are generic versus branded and in the first half of the study there is a drop down menu on the prescription um, interface and the doctors get the branded drugs first and then beneath them it's the generics and in that setup 75% of the drugs recommended are generic it's, i think it's 2017 ish I don't know. towards the end of the study they flip the interface so now doctors log on to their prescription interface on their computers it's the generics at the top branded at the bottom so now if you want to get a branded medicine it's an extra two or three seconds of effort you would think for a rational uh, considered decision maker it should make no difference but it doesn't. They're it doctors, and you're noise. thinking, yeah, yeah, "Oh, yeah. You,
0: this is not." You're not. You're, you're yeah. going all right. They are experts in this field. They should know have an pr- opinion.
2: Anyway, keep continuing. Yeah. No, sorry, <laughs> no, 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 You're absolutely right. The very good point to emphasise. They are doctors. They, we're not talking about estate agents or media planners or those <laughs> right. where you know we,
1: you know, have
2: a you know. There's a right. we haven't taken a Hippocratic oath. This is a group of people <laughs> who are highly right. intelligent, probably have a real strong self-identity about being rational, logical decision makers. Yet when there's that flip, when it's slightly, slightly harder to order a, a branded drug, the proportion of generics goes up to ninety-eight percent. So it was 75 now it's 98%. You know, the principle that we've seen again and again about small bits of friction affecting consumers, you know, Amazon moving to one click purchasing, Netflix flicking to or switching to autoplay rather than having to choose the next program. We've seen it amongst consumers work by Olshan and his his colleagues just the same with professionals. The only difference is probably those professionals are far more loath to admit that they're affected by the <laughs> yeah.
1: They are. I, I, the, yeah. My personal experience with friends of mine who are physicians, uh, they reject that outright. They're like no, yeah. that, that that's not me. I'm like, well, yeah. it's you. <laughs> it's it's
2: all of us, by the way. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. This is uh, yeah, humans is a sort of human nature, not consumer. Nature. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Richard, we, we did talk a little bit about uh, Apple and their thousand uh, songs in your pocket comment earlier, which is pretty fascinating. Let's zero in on an imaginary state where you get to put two songs in your pocket or two artists in your pocket and you get to be on a desert island for a year. What two Ooh. artists would you put in your pocket?
2: That's a great question because I think the desert island for a year, you'd want someone with. Uh, variety. So I think I'm gonna go David Bowie would be the first and obvious choice. I think big thing. Like lots of variety. Yeah. Yeah. And Ziggy Stardust. Two, two of my favourite albums. I think they've been there amazing. But then for the second, if I'm on a desert island, I probably need to be doing a bit of exercise to um, you know, to keep reasonably healthy. So then I want something that's a little bit more um, adrenaline fueled. So maybe I'll go for uh the strokes as a as a as a second, oh. second eyes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. You did, you didn't bring up uh, uh, The Verve.
2: Ah, uh, uh, no, I didn't bring up The Verve. I'm <laughs> a, I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Ashcroft and The Verve, but uh, yeah, yeah, they, that they, they would be equally, equally good. Yeah. Oh, but I think okay. I'll go for The Strokes and David Bowie.
1: Yeah. So are you a big, uh, 90s alt indie rock fan? Oh. You know?
2: so, 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 that I was, you know, that was, those were my formative years. So I, um, you know, would have been 15 in 1990. So yeah, a lot of my youth, I was, went and saw Primal Scream and um, I saw uh, The Strokes when they did Is This It album at, at Brixton Academy. So yeah, that, that was the kind of music I liked then. And back in the 90s, I would have just listened to that kind of music, Cure, Stuff, Stone Roses. What has changed though and what I love and why I think Spotify is one of the greatest ever inventions is it encourages experimentation. So I as a 15 year old would never ever have listened to heavy metal. I've never listened to rap. I would never listen to country and western. Whereas now I've got into John Prime. Uh, I like Public Enemy. There are <laughs> heavy metal maybe less, but there are a couple of songs <laughs> that I like. Okay. You
0: you're not you're not uh, downloading Metallica, uh, you know, and just going off uh, off the edge yeah. on there. All right. No, so. but,
2: you know, but I do love the fact that you can try these types of music and um, and there's there's no financial cost, whereas I would never have dreamt of spending £15 or £10 uh, of, of money buying an album in a genre that, other than indie music back at 15.
0: I think it's interesting, and Tim, you probably have better insight on this. I think one of the interesting things is, yes, we can explore a variety of different genres and different pieces um, but I think there has been some studies that show that we don't know who those artists are when we do that on Spotify because particularly if we get it on a randomized kind of component and so uh, the following of these newer bands that are coming out in various different p- pieces is less than it was when we when, when you were because you know I, I grew up in the 80s my my formative years and I had the bands that i i got every album they had and you know followed them religiously and i think that has tapered off uh outside of a few maybe bigger artists
2: that are out there and and that's
0: it's an uh, interesting conundrum you know
2: yeah yeah. i I think maybe in a way you are competing now as a musician with you know all the music of the last 50 years which is very very hard and actually the the people i've mentioned uh, the ones that have i've started listening to have have not be new modern bands it's things that somehow i missed when i was <laughs> when, when, when 15 or or, or or younger yeah
1: or you mentioned john prine i mean he, mm. he had a whole catalog uh
2: before you were born
1: you know I, I mean, I'd, I'd never s- heard
2: of him until 2020 and i think uh, spotify radio put him on I, uh, you know said to it who's this and he's one of those people that i've gone and explored and listened to to um you know hundreds of songs i think it's absolutely amazing yeah completely changed my view about uh, oh, I'm just that country in west. I'm not sure about the kind of genre name. I, yeah.
1: no, I would. I, I think he grew up in a more of a folk environment, uh, but he grew up just south of the Mason-Dixon line in the U.S. So it is. A, sometimes it does have a bit more of a country vibe. But yeah. But he's always got great stories to tell. He's a fantastic. Yeah, yeah fantastic. wonderful work, like, mm. yeah. Uh, Richard, it is such a treat to have you on Behavior Groups Thanks for being our guest today.
2: Thank you. It's been pretty fun. Thank you.
0: Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on our discussion that we had with Richard, take a deep dive into some topics and talk about whatever else comes into our very concrete and accurate and specific brains.
1: Yeah, let's do that. Let's absolutely, let's focus on the importance of avoiding abstract language when we have the opportunity to be more specific and concrete.
0: Well, let's not not just, no. I'm going nope. to disagree with you, okay? Yeah, because as we learned with Jonah, sometimes abstract uh, language is absolutely uh, appropriate, and we should be using it. We just need to use our concrete, accurate words in the appropriate manner at the appropriate time, like at yeah eight forty-five <laughs> or whatever in
1: the morning when we're doing this. Well, give it. Let's let's talk about what's a good time. When is it appropriate or when's it really good to use that very specific and concrete language so, compared to more abstract language?
0: Yeah, so as Richard was talking about, right, when we, we use concrete, accurate, specific language, what that does is it creates this perception that people trust that information more, right? They also remember it more. And so any time that you are trying to build trust and hey, make sure you get a specific memory kind of going uh, in a product, if you're talking about price or various other things, it's often better, but it also requires more processing and various different things, which is part of the reason why it's it's memorable. So if you're looking at pricing situation and it is a emotional buy or at the counter as you're leaving, you know, the, the shop, a uh, two dollar candy dollar candy bar might be better than a dollar ninety nine candy bar at that point. Because mm-hmm. it just is an emotional, it's it's less concrete and it's just easier to do. So there are there are reasons that when again you use more abstract, it's like getting people to think larger. And again, as we talked about, I think it was with Jonah or did was Richard. I'm getting these confused you know, Uber can talk about it's an app that gets you from point A to point B. But when you're going out to kind of investors, you want to have them think about changing the landscape of, uh, you know,
1: context, um, context matters very much so, which I I think it was really interesting uh, when we uh, and again, (laughs) I'm I'm, uh, conflating the two conversations as well. But the difference between 250 megabytes worth of storage for for music and a thousand songs in your pocket right like, so we have this very concrete 250 megabytes and then we have something that's going to be a little more relatable with a thousand songs in my pocket
0: which is also very concrete so this is this is i this was interest. this was with richard um and so this idea that you know, when Apple came out with their, what was iPods. it? iPods. Thank you. I can't even remember what the name was. Right. But when they so came out with iPod, that marketing thing, about a thousand songs in my pocket, I was again, as Richard was saying, really, really good because it was concrete. 250 megabytes is also concrete. Very concrete. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know what 250 megabytes relates to for me. I know what a thousand songs in my pocket does. And all of a sudden I can remember that, right? So 250 megabytes is accurate. It's specific, but it doesn't mean anything. A thousand songs in my pocket is concrete and it means something. And I think that's the piece that's really important.
1: Apple used that model of the number of songs that an iPod would hold for many years. I, I was impressed to see how they use it as a comparative uh, measure. So that as they came out with new models, they said, "Well, this one holds five thousand songs, and this one holds ten thousand songs." And as you as you increase the amount of memory, it wasn't they didn't express it in megabytes or or some kind of uh, standard uh, scientific memory tool. They expressed it in the number of songs, right. and th- I think that was a really effective. Uh, marketing message that they carried on for, for several years. Now, when they got into iPhones, everything got conflated because the phone does so many things. Right. So, uh, so it, it lost its, it lost its vigor.
0: Right. And, and, and it, which was fine, which is fine. It's really interesting when we think about that though, because again, When Apple did that, they didn't have behavioral scientists on the on their advertising team and marketing team to say, "Oh, we're going to use these concrete because this retain you know because of uh, a big study Uh, from 1973 (laughs) that talks about the uh, imaging integration of recall of words uh, that I read in the Canadian Journal of Psychology, uh, (laughs) and that uh, you know." Uh, what is this? Nine uh, percent of abstract words versus thirty-six percent of concrete words are remembered by people when they're doing this. No, they they don't. Did you like how I changed
1: my voice there? I like that. Yeah, you should was, do that all the time. Trying to be the, that. Yeah. <laughs> you sounded much more credible, more re, more relatable as an authority figure. Yeah. <laughs> that would be. I, that's another interesting study that could be done. Like how oh, yeah.
0: Voice in, 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 what am I, what's the word? I informed us. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: informs us, it influences us. Uh, no, it was going to say oh, um, okay.
0: <laughs> it had the eye part there at the beginning. There you go. Informs inflection, yeah. you know? All right. We, we, we digress.
1: Let's also talk about uh, friction and uh, because friction is a great story of Richard emphasize the idea that it's not always about reducing friction that there are times there are there's contexts in which adding friction can be a really important thing and I thought that that was a really good point especially for marketers uh, and and HR professionals this I just felt like this was a, a masterful comment to make an observation
0: yeah and we've talked about this before this idea that if you are working in business, whether it is in marketing, advertising, pricing, whatever it would be, or inside of an organization, that friction in and of itself, Roger Dooley will talk about this, right? And is this idea that yeah. most of the time reducing friction is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make things easier. But, and it's a big but, we have to be very cognizant about when we want to add friction and when we need to slow things down right. when we need to you know and and I love the saying um Pellegrino can example right that by adding friction it changes the perception of the drink cleanliness yes. the the desirability obviously they must be this must be high end because i have to mm-hmm. do this extra step and those are little things that we don't always, de- we don't take into consideration. And I think it's really important.
1: Luxury brands have done this for a long time. Uh, you, you don't just like buying a yacht, not like I have any personal experience, but I, I've, I've noticed the, like. But <laughs> my well, friends well, have all bought their yachts. And I, well, the last yacht that I bought, yeah. no. <laughs> no. I've never bought one. But I've, I've been interested in the way that they market their products and, and you you don't just pick up the phone and call them or send them an email and say give me a quote. You know, there's a there's a process that you have to sort of demonstrate your are not just serious about it, but you're qualified. Ah. Bef- before they have engage in a serious conversation, there's some vetting that that goes on and that adds to the perception of the quality of the product. Yeah. You know, it it just increases that.
0: So I I do want to make sure that we touch on the Danny uh, Oppenheimer study. Oh, yeah. The consequence, I can't pre-pronounce this, the consequences of iridite iridite vernacular utilized irrespective of necessity, problems with using long words needlessly. Um, 2006, right? And this idea, I just find it fascinating because we don't, Necessarily, see using big words as being smarter, which is counterintuitive, and I just love this.
1: Yeah, it is. It's it's pretty great. And I I, I did check. He did win the 2006 Ig Nobel Award in uh, literature for that for that paper. By the way, so <laughs> that was that was pretty great. Uh, and and for those of you who don't know, the Ig Nobel Award is given by Harvard by like very bright Harvard professors when they see an opportunity to sort of lampoon the Nobel prize, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, uh, so he did win, but yeah, this, uh, this, this counterintuitive result and uh, observation is something that marketers and HR departments can put to use. They can start thinking about the kind of words that they're, using when they're writing emails for their executives, for instance, to announce a back to work plan uh, or something like that. Simpler words are, are going to not just appear smarter, but they're going to be more effective for people to take action from.
0: And again, using concrete words uh, that are appropriate and relatable, all going to help. Yeah. All right. I'm um, uh, I- I'm ready to, to go out and and buy a coffee, and hopefully
1: it'll be a free one. Um, <laughs> what do you think? It depends on whether or not your barista is going to, you know, give you a little, uh, you know, bonus on the side for no, you know, for no charge. You know, a little extra this or that, or is it going to require you just to? buy 10, get one free.
0: Well, let's talk about you've done work with Rand Kivitz and your favorite study on coffee, oh, free yes. stuff. Which one is this? Yes.
1: It, so, yeah. So, Ron did this uh, wonderful study that you and I have talked about a lot. A over lot. The years. I, I use it way
0: too much, but yeah, I love it. But,
1: but it's so great. So, uh Kivitz went to the uh, the coffee shop at Stanford and got them to uh agree to have two different kinds of cards for a loyalty program. One was your standard buy 10 get one free and the other one was buy 12 get one free, but the first two are on the house. And so what he was re- he wasn't he wasn't um testing randomness so much as uh he was actually testing and sort of proving out Clark, Clark Hall's illusionary progress toward the goal effect. And this is a wonderful thing, too, I think, that marketers underutilize, right? Both of us, I, I think you'd agree with that, Kurt, that it's underutilized in the world.
0: Right, this idea uh, that progress. So so the result of that study was, all right, Both, both if you got the 10-punch card or the 12-punch card, it didn't matter because you still... Both had to actually buy 10 coffees or 10 drinks to get the free one. But what that study showed is that because there were 12 and you had two pre punched, people felt like you were making progress towards that goal, yes, that yes. illusionary goal progress that Clark Hall talked about. And thus you were more motivated to, to get those punches. And on average, it was. Almost three days faster is 12.1 days versus 15 point something. I forget, don't count we'll be on the exact, but it is almost mm-hmm. three days faster that they redeemed those cards, which is, yeah. again, it's 10 punches, both of them. You need 10 punches on both. It shouldn't matter, but that's not how our brains work. Yeah. Uh, and and this also goes so going back to randomness which we were talking about with 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 <laughs> yes, Richard we, right yes. this idea of a variable ratio this reinforcement of rewards on a variable manner it'd be very interesting to see like again if maybe you had a a, a loyalty card that came in you swiped it every time and it was just a random you know, and boom, hey, yeah, this time yeah. I get a free, I get a free one. But we don't use that variable reinforcement even inside of organizations and in the rewards and recognition world that we work in. Right. It's uh, it's there. Yeah,
1: I, I couldn't agree more. And the and, you know, variable reinforcement goes back to BF Skinner. He was he was the one that actually coined it. And again, we have our issues with Skinner. Oh, yeah. And at the same time, he did some really great work. And uh, the variable award uh, reinforcement model is very powerful. I think I think that they he stated that it it produces high steady rates of response, yeah. high steady rates of response. I mean that that's a really telling thing. If you want someone to do a behavior over and over again, consider this variable ratio reinforcement model and. Uh, again, inside the organization, customers, we've got to test it. we got to put it out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could use it in a peer to peer program where, hey, peers, peer to peer, you recognize somebody and it's yeah. just a standard recognition. Hey, great job, Tim. Thank you for all you do. Uh, but hey, one out of every, you know, 30 times I do that or 10 times or whatever the ratio is, you know, the person I'm recognizing gets a huge award or I get a, 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 yeah. an award for giving that recognition. And, And that can really change that. I will caution, um, I think United Airlines did this. I think they must have read some of this research somewhere, but they took away a program for gate agents and the people that are getting the planes ready to fly off on time. They had had a a award that was in there that, hey, you know, over the course of a year that that gate agent and others could probably maybe earn a few hundred to maybe a, a little over a thousand. Top earners were making maybe a, a little over a thousand. So not a ton of money, but for, relative, good, for good performance on the job and making sure that the, the planes got off on time. Right. And so the however they did on on doing that and they replaced it with this instead of like, a, you're, you're you know, getting every time a plane goes off on time, you earn an X amount. It was you got this uh, entry into a lottery, and the lottery was, you know, one person was going to win $100,000 dollars and 10 people were going to get a Mercedes-Benz lease
1: for a, right. a year, and it backfired immensely. But why did it backfire? Why do you think? It backfired because the employees didn't like it, right.
0: Yeah. And, and but the employees didn't like it a because you took something away loss so a loss aversion yeah but b it also is this element where again, many of these people were thinking, well, five hundred dollars, seven hundred dollars, thousand dollars probably not all that much, but that was a pretty consistent amount of of money that they had become um, accustomed to, to and yeah. used to. Uh, and so we have to be very careful about how we implement these types of programs. It should be an add-on and not yeah. a replacement. So,
1: Yeah. I just wanted to point that out, that in and of itself, the concept may not have been Ideal, but it wasn't awful. Right, uh, the way that they executed it was pretty, pretty poor. Yeah. So, so
0: all right, we've okay. gone way too long already, Tim. <laughs> I'm sure there's a bunch more that we could talk about, but, but those were the high points for me.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think... Me, me too. Uh, can I also just say that there was a comment that you made near the end of our discussion, and this might be a little bit random okay. uh, to, to say this, but it was about music and how hard it is to follow bands today. You, you know, We were talking about how Spotify sort of brings so much new music to someone that it's really hard to just get to know a band. Uh, Spotify doesn't tee up the same band every time you listen, right? They're they're kind of adding friction into really digging into a particular band's catalog. Yeah, so. and
0: and and you know, it's hard to listen to an album. I mean, I, it, you, as much as yeah. you would like to maybe listen to an album from start to finish, it's hard and it makes it makes sense that, you know, Spotify picks only the most popular artists that are getting big followings and if you're not in that top tier, well, you know, I'm sorry Tim, but uh you, you know <laughs> you're you, not, you're to not gonna in get raised up into into most people's playlists
1: so no no but we are in the top tier of behavioral science podcasts. <laughs> oh nice <laughs> yes i love that yeah. and we it's just so uh, thank you to all the groovers uh who helped us get there and thank you to gab's yeah thank you it.
0: thank you actually thank you to everyone Thank yeah. you to Gabs. Thank you to all the people who listen to this on a regular basis and for voting for us and for just taking, um, just listening. We, we, we do yeah. really appreciate it. And we hope that you can take and apply some of the insights from this episode and Richard's conversation or any of the conversations that we had with the many great guests that we've had in our 354 episodes that we've done. And we hope that this helps you go out and find your group.